Hey everybody, Magnus here. Just wanted to give you a little bit of a warning up front. This episode marks the beginning of something new. Something very different in the history of this show. I wouldn't so much call it a new direction as it is... I don't know. Plotting a new course? Or maybe it's just finally bringing to bear a bunch of different things that I've wanted to do now for quite some time but haven't really had much of a chance to do and this is where all of that shit starts I don't know nevertheless this is the beginning of something new hey your attention please this is a piece of art his Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm obsessed with comics, movies, and TV shows. But of those three, comic books are my favorite. And of those, I usually tend toward talking about superhero comics. But not today. Now, I should tell you that this episode's been cooking for a while now. You see, way back when I first created the basic format of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I knew this was I, that I was going to do this episode sooner or later. As a matter of fact, this episode was originally supposed to have been released way back in the fall of 2013. But, as so often happens in life, things took a turn. For starters, I got the idea to do that Superman Begins miniseries wherein I talked about a lot of different Superman comic book origin stories about Superman from comic books which explain his origin in comic book form as part of the lead-up to the Blu-ray release of Man of Steel on Blu-ray. That pretty much sidelined this episode for a long while there. But no idea of mine ever stays completely dead and buried and so Now's a good time to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's not a mainstream superhero comic. Now, I love superheroes, don't get me wrong. In fact, those are my favorite kinds of comics. I mean, shit, the title of this podcast is itself a reference to a superhero comic. That's cred that money can't buy. But people, comic books can be so much more than superhero stuff. I mean, comics can be anything. And I think it's just about time that I start talking about some of that stuff. And you're coming along for the ride. Because this is my podcast. Because this isn't a decision by committee. Because I am Magnus. Because my word is law around here. Anyway. But yeah, I always wanted uh, this podcast to focus on all different types of comics, and since standard superhero stuff's been covered well enough, for the moment at least, I figured it's time to try something new. And what is that something new? Today, we're talking about Strangers in Paradise, the three-issue miniseries written by Terry Moore, drawn by Terry Moore, colored mostly by nobody, which is another way of saying it's mostly black and white, and published mostly by Terry Moore. Strangers in Paradise was a critical darling, 
uh, back when Wizard Magazine was semi-relevant, which is about as much legitimacy as they ever deserved, but back when Wizard Magazine was semi-relevant, they had regular spotlights and features about Strangers in Paradise. You see, this was a time when Wizard staff were absolutely desperate to talk about anything other than DC or Marvel. So, independent comics were just what the doctor ordered. And, to be fair to them, Strangers in Paradise was definitely worth reading. You can't say that about everything Wizard talked up. Youngblood, I'm pretty much looking right at you. All this, and I haven't even talked much about what Strangers in Paradise even is. It's basically the mixed-up story about three mixed-up people who are trying to make their lives unmixed up, and they're relying on each other, or even falling in love with each other, in order to do it. And, yes, the fact that they live in Houston, Texas, makes me smile. I recognize all the sights. The miniseries starts with a flashback to Francine's high school production of the play, Strangers in Paradise, where her toga falls off in front of everybody. Flash forward to the here and now, and Francine, as an adult, shoots Freddy, her boyfriend, down for sex for the 70 millionth time. Next morning... Freddie and Francine have a meltdown because they've been together for a year at this point and he hasn't gotten any loving. Kachu, Francine's roommate and best friend, tries to cheer her up by seducing her, but Francine shoots her down too because they're best friends and Francine's straight. Later, Kachu meets David at an art museum and he manages to get her to have coffee with him, which kind of sort of makes you wonder just how gay Kachu really is. Meanwhile, Francine tries to win Freddy back by surprising him at work in lingerie, but she catches him porking his secretary. They talk later, and yep, Freddy dumps her. Francine doesn't handle it so well, and so she crashes her car, and Kachu finds out it's basically all Freddy's fault. So Kachu's pissed. The second chapter kicks off with David trying to get into Kachu's pants and having about as much luck as Freddy did with Francine. Kachu then decides to pay Freddy a visit. After that, it's back to the apartment where David's been keeping an eye on Francine. It later comes out that Kachu kidnapped Freddy, stripped him down naked as the day he was born, and strung his ass up in a department store window. And Freddy vows revenge. Revenge! 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 The third issue begins with Kachu getting arrested for kidnapping, two counts of felonious assault, one count of illegal entry, property damage, and shitloads of other stuff. In her cell, Kachu gets groped by a cop, so she beats him up. Meanwhile, Francine and Freddy's former secretary, Margie, break into Freddy's office to find some incriminating shit about him to use as leverage so that he'll drop the charges against Kachu. Freddy then drops the charges against Kachu. Then Kachu, Francine, and David hang out at the apartment and enjoy some old-school Super Friends laughter as the story ends. Amen. <laughs> so, what do I think? Well, for one thing, this is a comic book that doesn't really lend itself to an easy summary. I mean, yeah, I can tell you what the story is about, but that doesn't account very much for sight gags and stuff like that, which just don't fit really well into a summary. And that leads actually into the art. Moore uses a fairly dexterous and cartoony style. And at first, that, I gotta be honest, that kind of bothered me. Because I just thought that type of art style detracted from the story. But as I got further along into the series, what I ended up realizing, and this is going to sound weird, but what I ended up realizing is this cartoony art is, believe it or not, actually the perfect companion for the writing style. And the reason for that is because it takes, it takes away several degrees of realism. And the end result is a, it's a pretty effective combination of text and pictures that... 
it just it captures the slightly non-reality world that the characters live in. Now, the ongoing series would take the art to the next level, but it's still kind of interesting to note how much a, how much of that was part of Strangers in Paradise, literally, from the get-go. Now, I've not mentioned too much about the coloring because Strangers in Paradise is a mostly black-and-white title. Now, yes, five or six issues were published through Image Comics at one point, and, and those were all colored, but mostly, with only a couple of exceptions, the coloring job is just functional. I mean, when it comes up much later on, it's not a part of this series, but when it finally does come, uh, come up later on, it really doesn't add to or detract from too much of anything. But it's really not worth mentioning here because the miniseries is completely in black and white. And like I said, I don't think the black and white thing adds up to much other than, well, really, it's a financial decision on Moore's part to keep costs low. You don't gain or lose anything by coloring this stuff. Now, yeah, 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 I realize that goes against some of the pretentious bullshit prevailing wisdom that says that black and white is always, always, always better. But it isn't, in the case of Strangers in Paradise. Oddly enough, though, the trade paperbacks I've got are all black and white, including the issues that were originally printed in color, so go figure. Anyway, so that's that stuff. There are some other things to talk about, and this may get me in some seriously deep shit. I don't know. We'll see. This is the first comic book I can ever remember reading that was blatantly intended to appeal to women. That's not to say men can't, or for that matter, men don't, enjoy it. Take me, for example. By and large, I dig the series, but let's cut to shit. This comic's meant for women in the same way that most Pixar movies are meant for kids. Yeah, other people probably can get into it too, but that doesn't change the fact that both Pixar movies and this comic book, Strangers in Paradise, that they both have a core audience that they're pointed to. Strangers in Paradise is one of the reasons why I think the 1990s is the all-around best time in comics. And part of that is... I'd say probably even more than the 1980s, the 1990s was all about independent comics. Strangers in Paradise is one such. I mean, you could do wacky stuff like Strangers in Paradise that has really nothing to do with capes or superpowers, and the comic book industry back then was big enough to support it. I truly don't think you could launch a series like Strangers in Paradise today and expect the traditional comic book audiences to invest in it. And in terms of self-publishing, forget it. Oddly enough, Image Comics would be a very logical place to publish something like this today, whereas back in the 1990s, we all were scratching our heads about that one. Now, I know this is going to piss some people off, but I just got to be honest. By and large, I don't think women like comics the same way men do. Let's let that sink in for a second. I don't think women get into comics the same way that men do. I think most women, and I'm talking about fangirls here, not civilians. Fangirls. But most women, maybe they like certain characters, or they like, or they like comic book art, or whatever. But following a story... Look, you can call it sexist, you can call it narrow-minded, you can call it misogynistic, you can call it anything you want. What you can't call it, though, is wrong. You can't say that I'm wrong about that, because I'm not. Show me a chick cosplaying as Loki, and I'll show you someone who probably doesn't know who Beta Ray Bill is. And here's the thing. None of that is even a criticism. It's not about measuring dicks over fandom. It's about me acknowledging that women get different things out of comics than men do. That's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just, it's a true thing. When I said that Strangers in Paradise is the first comic I ever read at women, what I meant was, it was a book 
designed to appeal to female audiences and keep them coming back month after month in ways that Avengers comics probably don't. Now, moving away from that stuff, the miniseries... This miniseries is sort of its own thing. The ongoing series that spun out of this mini would hit different tones. The miniseries has more in common with a sitcom than anything. And the ongoing series... I guess if you wanted to come up with a genre for it, it it was kind of like a, a dramatic, romantic comedy. And the ongoing series, at the same time, it could also get pretty fucking dark at times. But the miniseries is lighter and breezier. Now... Maybe it's directly because of that stuff, but Terry Moore's on the record for not being... I'm trying to think of the best way to... I guess not being completely happy with the miniseries, put it that way. My impression is he doesn't regret having done it, but for nobody's fault except his own, I guess. The miniseries just didn't exactly accomplish what he says he wanted it to. And honestly, I mean, you know, look, who am I to argue with the creator? But at the same time, I know what lay in store for the ongoing series, and some of it isn't very good. So the miniseries to me kind of seems like a, like a, this is a completely retrospective thing, though. It just seems like a golden era when the sky was the limit for these characters. And I guess that ties in with one of the things I like most about Strangers in Paradise. Everybody has a history. The miniseries only hints at some of it, but everybody in Strangers in Paradise eventually gets a shitload of character development. Terry Moore designed these characters to grow and evolve and change over time. Decisions that they all make much later on in the series are completely impossible to them right now. So... Whatever problems the Latter-day Strangers in Paradise ongoing series may have, I can at least respect how much time Moore spent in developing the characters to, I think, fairly logical conclusions. I've gone to pains to emphasize how different the miniseries is from the ongoing series. Don't misunderstand me. The ongoing series absolutely carries the story of the miniseries forward. It just takes a different tone when it does. The other thing is, it's easy to view the miniseries with rose-colored glasses. Fact is, though, it's only three issues, while the, on- while the ongoing series was like 104, 105, 106 issues, something like that. So, they're going to be peaks and valleys with a run that long. And I guess what I'm saying here is Strangers in Paradise as a miniseries and as an ongoing title are both well worth checking out, if for no other reason than to see what can be done with comic books outside of and apart from standard superhero type stuff. And again, this isn't me pissing on superheroes. Obviously, I love superheroes. But honestly, I just love comics. And to me... Strangers in Paradise, whatever problems the ongoing series ultimately ended up having, it's all about the possibilities and story potential that comics have that literally no other medium can quite match. People always want to point to Watchmen as a story that takes advantage of what comic books can do as a format, but honestly, Watchmen isn't the only game in town. Strangers in Paradise takes every bit as much advantage of the comic book format or at least as much as the comic book format is capable of, and arguably adds a few new tricks to the book. So, so there's that. <sighs> All right, so I think that's basically it for Strangers in Paradise. So what I'm going to do is just take a, uh, take a break. I'll be right back after these messages.
it was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Rocks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And so, we're back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback here to, to go through. First up, this is an email that came through from, uh, once again, uh, my friend, Fanboyimus Prime. Uh, that This email came through on January the 28th, and the title is The Shadows of the Empire Star Wars Retrospective Finale. And Fanboyimus Prime writes, Hey Magnus, so... Shadows of the Empire. Man, it's been a while since I read the novel and played the game. Scott shouldn't have felt bad about saying what what it was, given it was in the title of the episode. As for me, in Star Wars novels, I've, I've read a bunch, mostly from the library. Oddly, I think I got the novel 
Chewbacca died, but it wasn't on purpose as I had no idea that was going that was going to happen in it. I'm more of a Star Trek guy when it comes to the novels and comics and such. Use this spot to cut away and go into your own views on Trek. Hope you read the emails before doing so on the air, or this might be a bit embarrassing. <coughs> yeah, it might. Alright, so yes, I'm going to put your email on pause and just say, of the two properties, Star Trek and Star Wars, um, it's not that I don't like Star Trek, I do, um, but I just, what I find is that generally speaking, it's the rare person who likes them both equally. Usually, somebody likes Star Trek more than they like Star Wars, or Star Wars more than they like Star Trek. I've met very, very, very few people who like both of them equally, and when I say Star Trek, I mean like the classic traditional Trek, not the Abrams reboot, because I find that to be very Star Wars oriented. So I'm not really so much referring to that, I mean the old school. So I like them both, but just happen to like Star Wars a little bit more. But what I'll say though is this, um, as far as Star Trek is concerned, I find that, you know, the older I get, the more I become more of an original series kind of guy. Which isn't to say there's anything wrong with Deep Space Nine or The Next Generation or Voyager, Enterprise, the movies, you know, any of that stuff. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying that when it comes to Star Trek, in its purest form, I'm really thinking that the original series is where it's at, at least for me. So... That's Anyway, there's really no ending to that there, so to get back into the email. And speaking of Between Films Adventures, Shadows of the Empire is an easier fit between... Excuse me, then... Is an easier fit than between Star Trek 3 and 4 for, Co- for Kirk and Kosan Spock to be the senior staff of the Excelsior and Spock captain of his own ship. I've literally no idea what you're talking about there, so I'm just going to smile politely, agree, and we'll move on. <laughs> Though Shadows of the Empire really can't fit with the Marvel Star Wars comics of that time frame. You know, to put the email back on pause for a sec, to me, this is one of those things that... Well, first off, I have absolutely no stake in the Star Wars expanded universe, no matter what. But I guess to whatever extent that I do... To me, it's one of those things that it kind of needs to be acknowledged that this all works great as long as we acknowledge that these things don't really fit together really at all. And as long as you go in as long as you go into it, I guess with that understanding, with that expectation, then I think everything's going to be just fine. It's when you expect everything to just magically somehow fit perfectly together as though it was all planned out ahead in advance, that to me is when is when we start having issues. So the fact that maybe Shadows of the Empire really can't fit with the Marvel Star Wars comics. Well again, keep in mind who you're talking to here, but to me I just I don't see that as too big a problem. It's basically it's as big a problem as you let it be. Put it that way. So get back into the email. As for Darth Maul and talking about his backstory, well The most I've ever gotten into a discussion on him is if he truly was a Lord of the Sith, as I called a kid dressed up as him on uh, Halloween that. Which I guess means a Lord of the Sith. My younger brother disagreed that Darth Maul was a Lord of the Sith. And I was right, and he is. Now, pretty sure a lot of the ancient Sith buried on Korriban were turning in their graves that someone who wasn't even close to their standards was considered a Lord of the Sith, even if he is the trainee. And when the Sith Order was not under the rule of two, he'd definitely not be a Lord of the Sith. You know, I want to talk about that. Um, My view of it is that... Basically, there was a point, obviously there was a point, in between 1983 and 1999, when the people developing the Expanded Universe pretty much did whatever it was that they wanted to do. And that includes developing the background of the the history of the Sith Order. And basically what it comes down to is all that stuff about a race of people, not an adherence to the Force, but I mean a race of people called Sith, the planet Korriban and all that other stuff. That basically all originated from the EU long before Episode One ever came out. And so... Ever since then, I think my understanding is that the EU has basically been trying to play catch-up, figuring out a way to resolve their version of the Sith's history, 
with George Lucas's version of the Sith, the Sith uh, history, and basically just trying to try, trying to find a way to make it work as best they can. And again, I think this is an, this is an instance where we can acknowledge that this stuff all works fine as long as we acknowledge that it doesn't. You know, it, that it doesn't at all, really. So things like that actually don't really bother me, but except I'm trying to think of like the most polite way to put it. Basically, I regard as I've said before, the expanded universe to basically be filler. It's there to occupy space on a shelf and be sold and all that stuff. It's not really I don't really consider that to be essential Star Wars. And I understand that a lot of people have slaved for a lot of hours writing this stuff and trying to find a way to make everything else fit together. And then here comes George Lucas like 10 years later. And he pretty much craps all over everything that, they, that they've done just by making episode one. And then the rest of their prequels. And they're so desperate to just save what they've, that which already existed that, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I regard all, all this expanded universe stuff as product. To me, that's, that's, all it, that's really all, all it is. And so it kind of, it, it simultaneously amuses me and annoys me that they try so hard to get everything like this to fit together when, I'm sorry guys, the only version of this I care about like the official history comes from George Lucas. Otherwise, I don't, I just, I don't really care about that. Anyway, so that's that. Get back in the email, though. The most I'd want to do with Darth Maul is have some pre-episode one stories where he's a badass and doing all kinds of brutal things and fights. Really, beyond that, the guy never really interested me. Well, I think they actually have, um, Fanboyimus, I think they've actually got a couple of novels about that. One of them is Shadow Hunter, and I forget... I forget the name of the other one, but there are two out there that are basically pre-episode one uh, Darth Maul uh, stories, and I'm not sure if you've ever read those, but it might it might be uh, sort of interesting for you. So if you haven't, give them a look. One of them, and now I'm blanking on which one it was, it was but one of them was actually I thought very entertaining. So you may want to you may want to check that out. It adds several layers of intrigue to what was going on in episode one, and it's got its own levels of intrigue itself. But my my whole thing about about Darth Maul is that for as cool as the character might have been, and uh, he, he was powerful, he could do this, he could do that, at the end of the day, I could never picture Darth Sidious using somebody like Darth Maul as the co-administrator for the entire fucking galaxy. I mean... Darth Maul is an assassin. Uh, he's the guy. He, he's the pit bull. He, you know, that's the guy that you send in there whenever you have an enemy that you need to basically silence permanently. Darth Maul is the guy that you send. You don't send a guy like that to basically administrate the Death Star, all right? And you know, Darth Maul was effective at the stuff that he was used for in the prequel era. But I, very honestly, I would have had a hard time seeing him fulfill Darth Vader's role later on in the Empire. So, my suspicion is that it's a good thing that Lucas never actually had to deal with that. I, my guess is that he probably would have had Darth Sidious kill Darth Maul, and then he would have found a new apprentice. I don't know what the, I don't know what the thing there would have been, but, yeah, anyway, so that's what I think. Uh, to get back into Prime's email, though, and found from the Force stuff you mentioned from Shadows of the Empire was interesting. It was, it was simple, easy to understand, and fit with what Obi-Wan said to Luke on it for A New Hope. Trust your feelings, and of course, not forcing anything. Can the Force be considered gaining inner peace and enlightenment? Perhaps, but there's something for keeping the Force in terms of... in terms that people can understand. And obviously I agree with that. As for the total recall thing on there being no way to get to Mars, that whiner should have... Uh, just picked up some currently proposed manner of space travel to get there and roll with it. I mean, they had tunnels through the freaking Earth for people to get around in with really fast trains. At that point, picking a proposed method of even faster spaceflight isn't a stretch. It's merely you being lazy. I agree. On to superhero comics having to be realistic. The hell with that. Especially for the New 52 as it tried to be Marvel and have more secret organizations to the point it was laughable. 
Of course, beyond Shade, I think most of them are destroyed or will be destroyed when Stormwatch and Teen Titans end. If you say so. I'll have to take your word for that. And on things that don't make sense, Hawkeye is unneeded in Secret Avengers. With the current shield led by people with tunnel vision, quote-unquote, Clint Barton has not, beyond the first issue, served a role that any other character couldn't be put in for. I'll admit that I haven't read all the issues of Secret Avengers Volume 2, but I have a gut feeling I'm right. And also feel I'm right that Maria Hill is a crap leader of, Sh of S.H.I.E.L.D. Isn't to say she's a bad character. She's just a terrible leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm going to put that on pause, actually. Um, my view of Maria Hill is that... Look, it's been a while since I've actually read anything that had her in it, so just bear that all in mind as, as we go through this. But... My reading of her is that she's a captain, not a general. And I mean that like I'm not I don't mean actual military rank. I mean that's just the the role that she fits in. You know, she's not the one that actually leads everything and has to be misresponsible for 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 it all. That's just not the way that she rolls. That's not the role that she works best in. And through no fault of her own, she basically found herself leading S.H.I.E.L.D., and she was basically caught between a rock and a hard place, doing a job that she was no damn good at, but at the same time trying to do her best to make some kind of sense out of it. And so, you know, the fact that she didn't do a good, uh, a very good job of leading S.H.I.E.L.D., by itself, honestly, that never really bothered me all that much. So, anyway, get back into Prime's email. Anyway, I agree that hyper-reality and superhero comic uh, superhero comics mixes about as well as matter and antimatter. Flying alien men and radiation not killing people due to genetic tinkering by enigmatic giant armored space beings. Can't they just be honest and admit that Stanley, Bob Haney, Jack Kirby, etc. didn't have hyper-realism in mind at all? For the heroes to have feet of clay for Marvel's heroes? Yes. But there is a world of difference between feet of clay and having, and having to have it all make sense in the real world. And again, I agree with that. Hell, bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly, but they do in the real world. Ah, Marvel's Civil War. Or, as I put it, the beginning of Marvel needing everything channeled into some year-long story. The need for realism. In a universe where Kang blew up the freaking United Nations a few years ago as the beginning of his war on the 21st century. Or Ultron slaughtered an entire Eastern European nation. No one called for anything then, or I think complained the real-world effects of those were ignored. Alright, um, okay, back on pause. Um, for those of you who don't understand where the whole Civil War thing is coming from, basically there was a little digression that uh, Scott Rifen and I took in the Shadows of the Empire episode where we talked about, among other things, Marvel's Civil War. And... I read Marvel's Civil War right around the time that I was starting to become just very disenchanted with the DC Universe. And so I read Civil War, and I thought, dude, these are some really fucking good comics. And so it's one of those things that I freely acknowledge I'm not... I've got my biases about that, you know, because it felt like there was a point in time when Marvel, just no questions asked, took me in as a fan and gave me basically a, a place to hang my hat, so to speak. And... You know, that means something to me, that, you know, the stories were good, and it just, it didn't feel like I was being talked down to, or that, you know, what I consider to be my legacy in comic books being completely fucking betrayed. Now, the irony to that is that a lot of people read uh, Civil War, and we're talking about hardcore Marvel fanboys here, who felt absolutely, completely fucking betrayed by Civil War, by... Uh, Tony Stark basically acting like a complete fuck widget by uh, Reed Richards, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like on the one hand, I don't think it's my business to argue with them, A, because I'm Mr. Johnny-come-lately at all this, and B, they're the ones who, who have lifelong Marvel fandoms under their, uh, uh, under their belts. And so it's, it's – I understand those arguments. I Fuck, I even see a few of those arguments, but I mean – it's just, Civil War is one of those things, it's very hard for me to be, it's hard for me to go on, to, to be too hard on Marvel about it, put it that way. And so, anyway, 
anyway, so that's that's just my reference point, and um, not saying anyone else is wrong. I'm just saying that's where I'm coming from. So anyway, to get back in the email. Of course, the Wolverine tie-in to Civil War almost turns the whole thing on its head, as the whole thing with the amped-up Nitro was really the CEO of Damage Control trying to increase his bottom line, and had been doing so for a while, it seemed. With Maria Hill as leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. not wanting to do anything when Wolverine brings forth evidence of this to her. So she had time to piss off Captain America before the registration, but no time during it to try to deal with a CEO who had likely gotten shitloads of money off the United States government on various levels for rebuilding parts of New York City, especially he made worse and more damaged. <clears throat> of course, Marvel also blew Spider-Man's unmasking, as you could more, re more realistically get MJ to divorce or leave Peter on her being sick and tired of his trying to make up for not stopping the guy that killed Uncle Ben beforehand by leaping headlong into decisions he doesn't think through and believes at first glance to be good ideas but aren't. Seriously, Peter has been doing that for decades, so there's plenty of material to use as examples for this problem to be building and building until his unmasking Mary Jane's last straw. I want to talk about that. Um, just to put the email on, on hold here for a minute. Um, I th I, basically, what I, think, what I think was going on there are, are really two things. Somebody at Marvel wanted to get rid of the spider marriage. They came up with basically the idea, maybe not you know the the aspect of Mephisto and all this stuff, but they came up with the um, proposal for doing all of this stuff before Civil War came along, and then someone thought, well, if we're if what we're going to do in the end is just basically uh, eradicate the spider marriage, why don't we use why don't we do it in a way that you know is is, is sort of shocking. And so, basically, from there, the idea was hatched that not only is the spider marriage going to go away, it's going to be due to the fact that Peter's life is in danger because he has revealed his secret identity to the world. But fundamentally, I see those things as, as two separate things. It was already decided that, that the spider marriage was going to go away, and so someone saw... Uh, Peter revealing his secret identity to the world as a, as a chance to be shocking and uh, provocative and all that stuff. And I've actually seen several people say, keep in mind, this is totally in retrospect, but a lot of people say that the minute they read the bit where Peter exposes his uh, secret identity, they should have known. They should have known that something huge was coming down the pipeline because there's no fucking way Marvel was ever going to let that stand. And they didn't. They, they allowed themselves to get swept up in the moment and didn't really do any kind of critical thinking or anything like that. And, uh, and basically, they were just really beating themselves up over it. And you know what? Whatever. I kind of view that as, assuming it's true, that little conspiracy theory I just put out there, Assuming that's true, I mean, I kind of think that's sort of cheap storytelling to do something so shocking that you know you're just going to magically undo later on. But I guess over and above all of that, the idea of Peter Parker getting a divorce... I mean, look, of all characters in comics, he was always the everyman. And divorce is just so fucking typical these days that if Peter's going to be the everyman... It's really not a stretch to think that he and Mary Jane would get a divorce. And as normal as that is, as fuck, as almost customary as it is these days, I realize that most people want to say that it takes two for a, uh, for a relationship to fail. You know, anytime a relationship is unsuccessful, both people are at fault. And I say fucking bullshit. No, one person is at fault. One person wants to leave that much more than the other one did. And I think that's actually kind of obvious by the fact that one person filed. And on top of all of that, and I know I'm going to get some hate mail off of this, but these are federal statistics. In the, ma in the majority of divorce cases, women file 70% of the time. So you can take whatever you want from that, but like I said, these are statistics. Look them up. You can find them for yourself. The reality of the situation, though, is that whenever a divorce happens, 
it's usually one person or the other's fault. That's just the way that I that I think of it. When people break up or when they have a divorce or whatever else, I realize it's all shiny, happy, friendly to say that both people are at fault. And I just, I'm sorry, I don't fucking buy it. One person is at fault. One person wanted to go more than the other one did. And so what that means, though, is I think most people understand that. And that's one reason why Mary Jane and Peter getting a divorce would, would have been a tough sell. And the reason for that is because you would basically have to, I don't, not vilify, but, you'd, but in a weird kind of way, you'd have to make one character or the other look bad, really is what it comes down to. And... Is it going to be Mary Jane or is it going to be Peter? And is Mary Jane going to stick around in the books? What if they decide they want to bring her back five years from now or ten years, twenty, something like that? You know, what happens then? And so, when and I, and I kind of understand, this sort of gave me a different perspective on, you know, co- on comic book characters getting married whenever I started thinking about the possibilities here. It's all well and good if it's a Lois and Clark type of thing where they end up living happily ever after. But if there ever comes a point when you want to split them up then well then you've got a problem and if and if Peter and Mary Jane get a divorce one of them is going to be more at fault for that than the other and which of those characters do you leave looking like an asshole and so that much i understand but at the same time nobody wants to kill off Mary Jane because she's a good character and Honestly, I mean, I'm kind of opposed to killing off characters anyway. I mean, look, if you just don't want a character around, write them out, all right? They move to fucking Los Angeles or something. I don't know. Montana. They move someplace else, away from fucking New York. All right, but this idea of killing characters, I mean, the older I get, the more I just say, that's fucking bullshit. So, anyway. So, just to kind of summarize, they can't really divorce... Peter and Mary Jane, because like I said, one person or the other is going to be at fault for that, and we all subconsciously know that, just for whatever reason. We're not allowed to say so out loud. But in cases of divorce, one person is responsible, or more responsible, than the other. And if you kill Mary Jane off, well, again, she's a good character. Those don't exactly grow on trees, so then what do you do? And so, that kind of leads, you're sort of left with a very limited amount of options, and I understand why they want to use magic, because that's a perfect way for it to be nobody's fault. In fact, you know what, in a weird kind of way, this sort of reminds me of of the uh, of just the contortions that A.C. Crispin went in the, uh, went to in the in the Han Solo books, whenever uh, Bria and Han break up in the first, in, in the first chapter, the first novel. A.C. Crispin bent over backwards to make sure that neither of them were really bad people as a result of, uh, of of their breakup, right? It was nobody's fault. It was completely, it was all done by external factors and all this stuff, which basically told me that, you know what, we haven't seen the last of Bria. She's definitely going to be coming back if, anyway, so, and that, that same kind of thing is basically here. It's all, it's all... The spider marriage was basically undone by external forces. Magical external forces in this case, but still external forces. It really wasn't anybody's fault. And that, I think, is what Marvel was looking for. And so, but like the, but as I said before, you know, the idea of Peter Parker and Mary Jane getting a divorce, I think is just so fucking typical these days. Yeah, you know what? Maybe you would leave Peter looking like a jerk. Or you'd leave Mary Jane looking like a jerk. But... Fuck it, you know. I'm sorry. Peter's Peter is the everyman superhero. You know the the strength, or rather the struggles of the common man, have always been Peter's struggles, right? Whatever the common man is going through at any given time, that those are the problems that Peter's going through. And I think divorce is the next logical thing on on Peter's docket. And anyway, so I just. I just look. I'm one of those people who thinks that people, when it comes to one more day really need to get the fuck over it. But at the same time, I don't know. I just feel like Marvel just found the most pussy way to do this. And so, whatever. Anyway, getting back into his email. 
Seriously, Peter's been doing that for decades, so there's plenty of material to use as examples for this problem to be building and building until his unmasking of, um, is Mary Jane's last straw. That also doesn't stop them from getting back together one day if someone wanted them to, and it doesn't take a steaming shit on several decades of comics. Hey, prime my thoughts exactly. So, realism my ass, they were doing. It's a lack of imagination and shitting all over continuity that are the real problems. Of course, there's also the fact that Bendis needs an assload of retcons for his events to be formed and can't be bothered to do it organically. Not saying Bendis is a terrible writer, but man, he has some writing quirks that annoy me to no end. Prime, I get the idea that you heard that part of my episode with Scott Rifen, the Shadows of the Empire thing, and you're trying to bait me into something here, and I'm not taking it. I'm not taking the bait. I'm going to save all of my comments about Brian Michael Bendis for my Brian Michael Bendis appreciation series. Nice try, but it's not going to work. <laughs> uh, get back in the email. And I find it very odd how some comic fans will buy entire runs of things as they come out, even if they don't like it. And again, I've always been one, been one to buy what I like and dump it if I don't. That's even true for the Transformers. As for Dash Rendar, haven't really seen much of him since Shadows of the Empire, so I got no real issues or gripes with him at all. Actually, I'm going to go back a step. You said that you don't understand why comic fans would buy entire runs of something that they don't like. I think that really owes back to the collector gene. But the other thing is, at least for me, my... Th I've got a fanboy muse, and it, it, it comes and it goes, and so the fact that I may be obsessed with a particular comic this week doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be obsessed with it next week. And if I, had to, if I had to point back to one problem I had in the 1990s as far as collecting, it was that I didn't understand that. I didn't realize that the fact that I'm not really nuts about, I don't know, Superboy, the uh, the clone, Connor Kent, Superboy, the, the title that was going on at the time that was written by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. The fact that I wasn't obsessed with it at that moment and just cracking out on it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the book or, for that matter, that I've just moved on in my taste. It means that the fanboy muse at that moment was not on Superboy. It was on uh, something else, right? To fucking pick something. It was on something else, right? And so that kind of accounted for this sort of patchwork collecting that I did where it was a little bit of Spider-Man here, a little bit of Superboy there, a little bit of Flash here, a little bit of Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern there, you know, but I didn't have solid runs of a whole lot of stuff apart from Superman because I don't have the same loyalty to other characters that I do to Superman. Superman, I followed through thick and fucking thin, and that's just because I consider myself to be a Superman guy. When you take everything else away, I consider myself to be a Superman guy. All right? And where I'm going with all this, I promise I'm going to tie back in with your point. But at least when I was younger, what I didn't understand was the fact that I'm not cracking out on any particular comic at that moment, it doesn't mean that I don't like it anymore. It just means that my muse is someplace else. And so what I need to do is basically identify the characters and teams and so forth that I like, buy those comics no matter what, and then when I... When the when the muse strikes, that's when I go in there and read and read those comics and just fucking love it, right? And I didn't understand that when I was when I was younger, and I I'd like to think I've got a better understanding of it now, but anyway, who knows? So what I'm driving at here is that I I'm not gonna say that the reason that comic fans will sometimes buy entire runs of things as they come out that they don't even like. I'm kind of willing to chalk that up to them not necessarily knowing if they're going to like it or not. I mean, they'll collect a book, you know, with the full understanding that I'm going to read this someday, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually, when their fanboy muse is on it, and then and then they'll make a decision, you know? And I, I, it's just, it's one of those things, I've seen it too many times for me to think that it was a complete accident, so, or that there wasn't something to this. And so that's that's just what I think. So, um, anyhow, so apart from that, you you go on to say, as for Dash Rendar, haven't really seen much of him since Shadows of the Empire, so I got no real issues or gripes with him at all. Now, I could be wrong. I think I think he was in that Shadows of the Empire Evolution miniseries. It was sort of a 
sort of sequel to Shadows of the Empire, and it mostly centered on centered on um on a Guri, and she was wandering around, <clears throat> wandering around the galaxy trying to find, I don't know, her own niche, I guess. And there, at one point, I think Dash Rendar actually showed up, so we can assume that he survived the events of Shadows of the Empire. Could be wrong, but that's that's just what I'm thinking. So, um, now, as to what other appearances he might have made since then, that I don't know. But I do think he that that's the one post-Shadows of the Empire appearance of his that I can, that I can think of offhand. So, anyway. Um, the next email... This came, um, this came from a, uh, a fellow podcaster, in fact. His name is P.Q. Ribber. And I'll deal with um, a little bit more about his podcast in just a minute, but what P.Q. wrote, this is dated January the 22nd. The title of the email is Podcastery. And uh, P.Q. wrote, Hi, enjoying the series and that you have opinions. There is a time where people could have things called conversations, generally and often, Friends participating in these things would have differences of opinion, and the fun and interesting part was this, and hearing what, other, uh, what others think, and learning from being exposed to other points of view. Somewhere we have lost this. Hopefully, somehow, we can keep and accept varieties of ways of seeing pop culture. The hoaxes episode, <clears throat> excuse me, the hoaxes episode was grand fun. Keep up the straight shooting and fine work. See you in podcast land. Signed, P.Q. Ribber. Now, here's the thing. I'd like to have... Before this email came through, I would have told you that I had a decent bead on some of... Not all, God knows, but some of the podcasts that are going on out there. And... Imagine my surprise, then, when I saw the link... In his um, in his the signature on his email for o n s u g dot com, onsug dot com. This is P Q Ribber, host of the I don't even know how the hell to pronounce this word Quackaversal Satellite Fringe Culture series on the overnight uh, the overnight scape underground. Now, this is without a doubt one of the weirdest, most fucked up type of shows that I've heard in quite a while. And I don't mean that as an insult either. I mean, this show is fucking awesome. There's a reason I've been playing uh, the promos for this guy's show. And this is why. I, first off, it's all very sort of monologue-driven. But the other thing is PQ's voice. He, he sort of has this, this less annoying uh, Wolfman Jack. So everything that made like the Wolfman Jack persona cool... He's got, but he doesn't have that damned annoying voice. It just sort of reminds me of this kind of late-night radio talk show that basically, let's face it, not very many people are really listening to in the long run. And the hosts know it. And so they can say pretty much anything they want without fear of consequence. They can shoot the shit and talk about pretty much everything. Life, money, dating, working, just whatever, right? Anything that they want. And... And that's that. And, he, you know, he just has this really easy delivery, this really easy style. And, guys, if you are not listening to this show, this is one of the most interesting and original and unique podcasts that I have ever fucking heard. They talk about really fringe pop culture stuff. And so I freely admit that this stuff is, it's all, from beginning to end, this whole thing is is an acquired taste. But if you like podcasts that are maybe a little bit more off the beaten path fuck's sake dude this is the show for you this show is fucking awesome anyway so first of all uh, now that i've gotten that stuff out of the way pq thank you very much for sending in this email and um honestly i what i've found is that mass media these days has not really led to diversity of opinion in fact if anything it's actually led to homogenization of opinion one of the things that i remember very clearly was it was about 1996 around there 1995 1996 and batman forever was still sort of on everybody's lips this was something that everybody was still talking about and generally speaking batman forever was something that was actually very well regarded by a lot of people now how well did the fans like it well this i cannot say but i do remember that 
in general, the reaction to Batman Forever was actually very good. It had a very good reputation. Flash forward just 10 years, and by that point, we've had the rise of the internet and all this, all these other communication media. And what I find is that rather than a bunch of people with differing points of view talking to each other, what you have is this weird, fucked up homogenization of opinion to where there's almost like some sort of uh, fanboy orthodoxy that we all subscribe to. And in some ways, we're all sort of powerless to break away from. And we even have, excuse me, we even have heretics. You know, people who don't fall into line. And those people are a bunch of, you know, provocative, divisive assholes and all this stuff. And it's just, it's just really fucking weird that we have all of this communication technology at our fingertips. But we're not saying more, we're actually saying less. And it's just, it's, it's very interesting to me. And so that's just one of the things that kind of popped to mind when I read your email that... You know, this, all, all, all of this media, uh, social networking, Facebook and Twitter, and then just the internet and fucking general blogs and all this other stuff. I mean, we just don't have as much diversity of opinion now as we did 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, we didn't have as much diversity of opinion then as we did 10 years before that. On and on. And so, it's actually kind of fucking sad. But anyway, all of this is my way of saying I agree with you, and I, I found I found that to be a very incisive, or not incisive, insightful point. And so anyway, uh, PQ River and I we uh, traded emails a little bit after that about um, other things. This was really the main the the main thing that really pertained to this show. And then from there, he and I were just kind of having a conversation with each other. But like I said, this guy is a cool fucking podcast, and you need you need to 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 check this out and. I didn't even give you his... Yeah, well, I did, but I want to repeat it. His web address is onsug.com. That's onsug.com. Overnight scape underground. Onsug.com. Guys, check out this stuff, okay? It's First off, it's just... It's really well done. It's really well produced on a technical level. But it also, like I said, it centers on just really weird, fucked up, fringe pop culture. This is the kind of stuff I don't think... I think literally nobody else is out there talking about fucking these guys are talking about it. So, like I said, just fucking listen. This is this show is great, and I could not more highly recommend it. And I think that's basically it for feedback, since I don't have any iTunes reviews. Yeah, no, no, no iTunes reviews. So, I, and I'm finally, finally caught up on on uh, on feedback. Not bad. It took three episodes, but. Here we are, finally all caught up on feedback, at least at the time that I record all of this. And so that's that. I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to write in. Um, and for those of you who would like to write in, you can uh, contact me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. I also would love to get some iTunes reviews. I know that that's a pain in the neck to do. You have to sign into iTunes and all of this stuff. I know that can that, that can sometimes be a little aggravating, but I would nevertheless appreciate it if you could do it. Also, come back next week for my 39th episode, Epic Milestone Anniversary Retrospective Spectacular Extravaganza, wherein we celebrate 39 episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality by talking about Grant Morrison's Animal Man. And so I think that's that. So again, thanks to everybody who took the time to write. Bye, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? 
feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.